Okay, hello. <clears throat> Good morning, everyone. Uh, welcome to this AIA Georgia Secretary of State Candidates Forum. It's great to get up early, drink coffee in the beautiful Ansley Golf Club, talk about professional licensing and liability. Am I right? <laughs> I'm uh, Ann Rogers. I'm a healthcare architect with Perkins and Will, and I'm also AIA Atlanta's board director of advocacy. Um, a recording of this discussion will be available wherever you get your um, podcasts, no later than July 6th or 7th, so that our 2,200 members across the state can have access uh, to this uh, experience. I'd like to extend a warm welcome to any elected officials we may have in the room. Anybody, anyone a member of the state licensing board? No? Okay, well, just welcome to our other elected officials. Um, we are very fortunate to have Catherine Bidette as our moderator here today. Most of you know her, but for those of you who don't, she is an award-winning architect who has exhibited internationally. She is Associate Professor of Architecture at Kennesaw State University. She is President of AIA Georgia, and very relevant to this discussion, she is the Architecture State Licensing Advisor for Georgia. We are lucky to have her expertise, and I thank her for participating. Thank you as well to our three candidates who've made time in their busy campaign schedules to be here uh, and talk about how they would address several issues relevant to our profession. I'm going to start alphabetically. So John Barrow is down on the end. He's a Georgia Bulldog as well as a Harvard man. He served on the Atlanta Clark County Commission for 14 years before heading off to Washington, D.C. as a U.S. representative of the 12th District, where he served 10 years. After leaving Congress, he taught courses at his alma mater, University of Georgia, and worked as a, pro, as a pro bono staff attorney at the Atlanta Legal Aid Society. Thank you for being here. Uh, David Bell Isle also attended uh, University of Georgia for undergrad and law school at Georgia State University, where he earned an MBA alongside his JD. He served as a council member for the city of Alpharetta from 2006 to 2010, and was elected mayor of Alpharetta in 2012. He currently serves as the chairman of the North Fulton Mayor's Association and runs his own business as a real estate attorney. So he understands kind of what we go through. Brad Raffensperger is a civil engineer by training, earning his bachelor's degree from Western University and an MBA from Georgia State. He is a licensed professional engineer in Georgia and 29 other states. So he also understands what we go through. Uh, Mr. Raffensperger served on the Johns Creek City Council for three years before heading to the Gold Dome in 2015 to represent State House District 50. He's the owner and CEO of a specialty contracting and engineering design firm, as well as a specialty steel manufacturing plants uh, based in Columbus, Georgia, and Forsyth County. Let's give a warm welcome, and we'll kick it off. Thank you, everyone, for coming this morning. Welcome. Uh, let me just kind of give you an overview of the session that we have. So we're going to start off with uh, some questions for the panel. We'll have all three panelists, uh, candidates, respond to the questions. And uh, we have a few, uh, three or four questions that we'll try to, try to see how far we can get through. Um, I've asked the candidates to keep their responses to two minutes or less, and they've all agreed. <laughs> so um, so we'll, I think we'll make some good progress with questions. These questions that I'm going to start off with are questions that have come from membership. So we opened the doors up. We said, uh, you know, what are you interested in knowing about? What kind of uh, questions do you have for this group? And so those are the questions that I'm going to start off with. Uh, uh, towards the end of the session, then we'll open up the conversation to the audience. So as we're 
as we're moving through the discussion, if you think of a question that you would like to ask, have that in mind, and you'll have the opportunity to ask that towards the end of the session. Uh, so let's go ahead and get started. I think, uh, how do we want to start? Congressman, you want to start the first question, and we'll move this way, and then we'll mix it up every time, OK? All right, super. So now, I have to tell you, uh, these questions from our members, a lot of them have some background. So I'm going to read the background and then give you the question. And, and if I need to repeat the question as we go through the discussion, I will do that. <laughs> uh, so the first question is on professional licensing. Uh, and of course, we're speaking to architects. And uh, licensing is a sort of a core to our profession. It's a core to the work that we do. Um, and it affects every one of our members. Um, so professional licensing, this was a question that came up. Uh, the state of Georgia requires professional licenses for more than 40 professions. And this year, House, uh, House Resolution 1374 by Representative Brett Harrell created a House Study Committee on Professional Licensing Board's operations and funding. As Secretary of State, how would you explore this issue? Would you look into any reductions in the number of professions that we license? If so, what would, you, what would be your criteria for determining which ones the state has a clear interest in regulating? So would you like to start, Congressman? Yes. First off, I don't know what the legislature's been doing for the last eight or 10 years in this area. They appointed a, a council back in 2010 to address the problem of the fact we have 41 boards and professions as different as architects and auctioneers, uh, all investigated by the same folks. And addressing the issue of the barriers that some of these uh, uh, professional standards are actually posing to folks trying to enter into the trade of the profession. And according to one of our former uh, candidates in this race, uh, that council hasn't delivered a report once, a single report, in the last eight years. I don't know what the legislature is doing, but the idea is a good one. And if they're not going to do their job of trying to address the issue of whether or not we're regulating too many trades and professions, whether or not we're doing it Less is a matter of maintaining professional standards, which I think is the hallmark of, of y'all's uh, regulatory goal and ambition. But on the other hand, serving as a barrier to folks wanting to entering into a, a, a trade or profession. Uh, if the legislature is not going to do its job, it's up to the Secretary of State to advocate for the purpose of the council and make sure the General Assembly is looking at the long laundry list, very inconsistent list of trades and professions that are being subject to regulation by the same body. Uh, the idea of a cosmetologist doing the unannounced spot checking for a mortician is ridiculous. I recognize that there are standards that apply to both professions, but the idea of all of these professions being regulated by the same investigative body, uh, by not doing a periodic re-examination of whether or not some of these trades need to be regulated at all, is an abdication of responsibility, first on the part of the Secretary of State, and second on the part of the legislature, whose job it is to make sure the Secretary of State doing his job. Uh, that's what checks and balances is all about. That's what oversight is all about. I think you're gonna get it when I'm the Secretary of State. I think there's two, there's two issues when it comes to the licensing board. One is the funding and resources side. You'll probably hear a lot of that today. Uh, so the, the, the licensing board alone uh, generates about $20 million in revenue. All that money goes to the general fund. And about 25% of that comes back to actually run the licensing boards, the investigations, the continuing education. And so, first of all, we've got, if we're going to have the investigators who are properly trained, who are specific to a, especially our professional side, as opposed to the trade side of those licenses, we've got to be able to get more of those funds in the Secretary of State's office to do those constitutional duties. 
The other side is that the purpose of licenses is to protect the public from either health or property issues, right? Not to protect a trade from competition. And I do think that we need to look at all 41 licensing boards. I think there's 163 licenses within those 41 boards. We need to look at not only does the license make sense, not only does this, is this something that should be licensed, but also does the, the, the continuing education, do the requirements, do they make sense? Because at the end of the day, we need to make sure that we're connecting Georgians to good and meaningful work, not standing in their way. And so that's the bright line rule. I'm sure we'll look at that as we go through the, the rest of these questions. Is, but yes, we absolutely need to take a fresh look at every single license and every single board under the Secretary of State's office. We also need to be able to be an advocate and a champion for making sure more of the resources that are flowing through the Secretary of State's office remain with the next Secretary of State to make sure that those constitutional duties are done. As your next Secretary of State, I'll make sure that happens. Good morning. My name is Brad Raffensperger, and I'm running for Secretary of State. I'm running for three reasons, to make sure that only Americans vote in our elections, make sure Georgia is a great place to find a job, and a great place to build a business. I am a licensed structural engineer in 30 years. But of an interest to note to you, perhaps, is that my grandfather, Harvey Bauman Raffensperger, he was born about 1892, and he went to Carnegie Institute of Technology in Pittsburgh, became an architect, licensed in Pennsylvania, practiced up through the 40s, and then my dad was a civil engineer. So we're three generations of engineers, architects in our family. I believe that some professions should be licensed, and I think it's really a question of public health and public safety. And I'm really excited that after being in the General Assembly, I was finally able to work with Representative uh, Brett Harrell to get the study committee so we can get some recommendations. Because if you look at what's happened in some other states recently, what they've said is, does this really need to be licensed? Now, I don't want to go ahead and pick on any uh, licenses that we have right now, but is it a question of public health and public safety for, say, librarians? You know, it's a well-respected profession, but does that require a license? Is that a question of that? I do believe that, y'all, you should be licensed. I do believe engineers should, because we can affect public safety if we mess up. So it's very important. So I need to think we need to look at that. And then we need to also look at how fast you get your licenses and what are the barriers to that. Because your number one job, really, is to get back. All of you here are probably working more than 40 hours a week. And what you don't want to be tied up with is bureaucratic red tape. And that's why I've also introduced a bill that which passed which allow business owners to renew their corporation for up to three years. And so what you ever look at, both at City Council and at the State House, I've always worked on reducing regulations. That's what I'll bring to the Secretary of State's office. Thank you. All right. Thank you, candidates. Uh, okay, so <clears throat> our next question, uh, it, it kind of touches on some of, some of the comments that you've made so far, uh, really looking at enforcement. So we have a license. How do we enforce? who it says that they're licensed, right? Uh, and, and how do licensing boards conduct their investigations and what kind of resources do they have? So this is a question. Uh, the state's 40 plus boards share an investigations team. This causes problems because the technical knowledge necessary to investigate a violation from one board to the next is very different. Uh, and how, it, so if we look at the differences between investigating cosmetology versus architecture, uh, if elected, how would you solve this problem? Start with me this time? Yeah, you want to start? All right. 
Well, I, I touched on this in the earlier response, and so here's the thing, though. There, there is a difference between a professional license and a trade license. You guys fall under the professional license, and I think it's a worthy goal to be able to find the resources at first, at a, at a minimum, to have investigators that are specific, at least to the professional license side. The trade stuff, the reason that we're in a situation where we have investigators that are having to go through the multiple boards and multiple disciplines is because there's simply not enough resources to actually have investigators that are dedicated to each board of those 41 boards. There's actually, I think, about 40 investigators total. And so, uh, but you can't have them all, you know, one per each. It would, never, it would never work that way. So part of the answer is that let's have a goal, as a goal, bringing dedicated investigators to the profession side of those licenses, but also figuring a way to get a greater percentage of that licensing revenue, that 20 million that's flowing through there to run the boards, 25% of that is not sufficient. We have to be able to retain more of those funds to make sure, you know, Secretary of State's an important job, uh, but it is also a hat in hand position, so you're gonna have to have someone who can make the case and be able to bring more funding to that portion of the office. All right, thank you. Would you like? The, there are two questions there, or really two uh, issues there. One is that actually with corporations and licensing, there's a, about 80 to $85 million a year that are raised in fees and licenses. But the budget for the Secretary of State's office is $30 million. And so you're faced with this issue of really over 130 different licenses, over 40 different boards. And how do you license that and how do you investigate that? I do think if we don't get additional resources, I do have over 100 state representatives that have endorsed my campaign. I do have over 21 senators that have endorsed my campaign. I've built strong relationships in the last four years that I was there. I traveled all over the state of Georgia before I announced for Secretary of State to meet these folks out in their areas so I could build some relationships to help, under, help them understand that as Secretary of State, we actually need to increase the funding for the investigation department because it's not just licensing. It's also about elections. We need to make sure we have enough sworn officers to actually do these investigations. With the resources we have right now, though, I would make sure that people are really specialized in certain areas. In other words, the design professionals have someone that's really you know, his sweet spot or her sweet, sweet spot, that she understands this, this whole area of what it is to be an architect, an engineer, a surveyor, and those type of professions. And then for nursing, someone that really comes out of the healthcare industry. And so that that's really where they spend 90% of their time. So we don't have to have one guy go from cosmetology one day to architecture the other. But I think one of the other answers is increasing the funding that comes from the General Assembly. Thanks. Thank you. Congressman. Let's be real. The reason why we have the cash cow problem, the problem of trades and professions being used as a cash cow to raise revenues that are not going back into providing the services that these fees are supposed to be paid for, it's because the General Assembly don't know about the problem and the folks who are spending the money like to have the money to spend. So you've got to have somebody who's prepared to rock the boat just a little bit to try and make sure that the customer who's paying for the service and the folks who are spending their money realize what each other is doing. And that's not going on right now. To get to your specific question about what we can do in order to try and make sure that peers are being judged by their peers, <coughs> given the starvation of the resources that's happened over the last 10 to 12 years under the, under the watch care of the General Assembly, I think what we need to do is we need to figure out a way of getting these regulatory boards that set the rules and regulations to work with the actual professionals themselves to see how much of the responsibility for peer review and inspection can be delegated to duly constituted representatives of the profession. Uh, there's a policy-making board, and there's folks who are charged with making sure the rules are being followed. I think we ought to engage the professional associations themselves to a greater extent 
in judging themselves and judging their peers, using the bare-bones skeletal staff of the Secretary of State's office. They can't possibly do the job alone as the only cross-trained people and to make sure that whatever role in, in peer review we delegate to the professions are not being turned into some sort of a cozy kind of cronyism kind of situation where folks actually are being challenged and tasked to judge their peers. That's certainly how other professions are getting the job done, and it ain't being done under the present system. Again, the problem is y'all are being used as a cash cow by the General Assembly. And it's very hard to persuade anybody that there's anything wrong with something that puts a dollar in their pocket or puts $25 million in discretionary budget they can spend on something else. You're going to have to have an ability to rock that boat, bring those folks together and realize that we can delegate more of the inspection to the professionals themselves, still make sure uh, that there's not cronyism going on, and that's how we're going to solve the problem. It won't happen as long as we continue the process where folks are spending your money and not providing the services that you're paying for. All right, thank you. <clears throat> um, so our next, uh, our next question really kind of looks <clears throat> at the Office of the Secretary of State, and it's a little bit different light. It's really more that personal relationship that everyone who has to get a license has with the process of getting the license, renewing the license, communicating. Uh, so um, in terms of processing licenses, uh, this was a question that we had, uh, and it's, this is actually a few different questions sort of uh, all smushed together uh, because it was a popular topic. Uh, this past renewal cycle, we heard from many members who had significant delays up to four and five months in receiving either their initial architecture license, their license renewal, or a reciprocal license from out of state. These delays negatively impact our members and our firm's ability to bill clients at appropriate rates, and these delays limit earning potential for the, and the ability to start a new firm and establish a business. How do you, as Secretary of State, plan to expedite and streamline the licensing process? So we'll start. Uh, since I'm licensed in 30 different states, I've worked with 30 different boards, and when I had a project up in Vermont, it took forever for me to get my license. And so based on what I saw there, I'll just use that as an analogy. Uh, in my business, we use uh, Zoom to connect remote offices. And what we found in some of these states is that boards don't meet that often. And if you miss that deadline when the board meets, then you're out of luck until the next time they meet. Well, you can really, with Zoom conferencing, you can really connect your boards remotely every two weeks. So every Friday or every Monday, you will pick a date. But then we'll go ahead and have those applications so that we can actually vote on those you know, applicants you know, every two weeks. I think that would speed up the process. That's the first thing that we could do. The other thing that we think, I believe what we need to do is we need to benchmark our performance. In other words, as you're filling out your application, you know, we need to set a date on that, and then we need to see what that process is, you know, what that happens, so that we can judge ourselves for accountability. But likewise, we also need to give, be giving you an email, here's where we are in the process, and it's quickly and it's timely, saying, hey, this, we need an app, we need this, you left this off here. And then we also need to have, as you're going through the process, with an online application, we need to have a chat button. We, did, we have that with the company that works on our server. When I have a question, I can just go there. We can, what's your question? What's your problem? And we need to have the same thing that you can talk to a real life person so you can kind of figure out what, we, what do you really exactly mean right here. So there's no questions so that we can get your application done. You know, the form's all filled out correctly so you get responsive uh, service. I've been traveling the state and what I said is that if you really look, there's a great book out 
It's called Remarkable. It's written by a guy named David Salyers and Dr. Randy Ross. And what they've done is they've done the training for Chick-fil-A. And my goal, and I want to make sure that we can do this, and I'm going to work hard at doing this, is to bring remarkable service to the Secretary of State's office. Because I believe that we never want to lose sight that we work for the license holder, we work for the taxpayers. And we should give you guys great service. And so we're going to have metrics, we're going to have benchmarking to see how our people are doing and be communicative to you so you understand where you are in the process. Thank you. Uh, Congressman, would you like to that? In addition to what Brad has said, I want, to, I want to shine a light on a part of the problem that we're experiencing. Not only do we have a problem where the legislature wanting to spend money on other things that they're raising from folks for purposes of providing a specific regulatory service, we have a problem that this office has been starved for resources consistently over the last 10 to 12 years, primarily as a result of the state's response to the Great Recession. As the state's income has, become, has proven to be elastic and, and gone down in response to a downturn in the economy, so too is the state's provision of resources. They basically cut services across the board. And that's one of the rationales for why the Secretary of State's office is as starved as it is today. We just had to cut back in response to the Great Recession. Well, here's the problem with that. If you're providing a vital service, if you are providing an important service, not only is it, not, it is a very inelastic service that you're providing. When the economy contracts, that's actually a time when you need to be focusing more on making sure the folks aren't cutting corners or the folks are getting the service in a timely fashion to respond to what little business is out there. Kind of like the schools. Starving the schools makes no sense when there's a downturn in the economy because the kids ain't got another third, fourth, and fifth, and sixth grade to go through to have a, a do-over with respect to the years when they're not getting what they need when they need it. If the services that the Secretary of State's office is providing professions such as yours are really vital, the last thing you want to do when the economy contracts is to cut the level of service provided to regulate in that profession. That is going to starve you all of the resources you need when you need it the most. It is a pro-cyclical approach. It actually makes things worse in a downturn. What we need is a counter-cyclical approach where there will not be a, an excuse or a rationale for cutting resources to providing necessary services when there's a downturn in the economy. Everybody who's thinking about this problem in a serious way in other, in other regulatory theaters approaches it that way. We're not doing that in Georgia. So while I agree with everything that's been said about things we can do, we need to recognize the big problem is we're treating you all as an accordion. The economy goes up, the economy goes down, so does the level of service you get. That is a betrayal of the very acknowledgement, the very reason for the service that's being provided you in the first place. There is a vital need to provide professional services on an ongoing basis. That need doesn't go down when state revenues go down. What we need is a means of making sure that y'all are providing the resources for your services. You're getting back the services that you're paying for. It's not being used for something else. Mayor Pilon. So what we have uh, learned so far is that Secretary of State's office is an important position, yet it has almost no authority uh, and it has almost no resources. Uh, in Alpharetta, we have a, a, a word for this. It, it means uh, important position, no authority, no resources. We call that person mayor. <laughs> because a mayor doesn't have authority or resources. Yet, as mayor of Alpharetta, I was able to lead Alpharetta to reinvent and rebuild our downtown, to bright and blaze a path to bring 85 acres into what we now call Avalon to launch a technology incubator that now serves over 50 startup technology companies, to make the case for and land a new technical college, to launch a conference center that can now serve up to 1,500 people, to grow Alpharetta to over 640 technology companies and over 100,000 jobs. 
That's not something that legislators can do. That's something you've got to be able to cast a vision. You've got to bring people together both inside your organization, outside your organization, and be able to chart that course. And so when it comes to all the things we're going to be talking about, licensing, no money, no money, no authority, no resources, I don't know if you knew this, the boards, they are appointed by the governor, all of them, every member of them. And the, and the, those, and the individual boards themselves are creations of the state legislature. And so when you hear about the problems of the state legislature, ask why we didn't get it fixed while someone might have been in the state legislature. But if you want to go beyond the authority and beyond the resources of the office, you need a mayor. And that's why I want to be your next Secretary of State. Thank you. Uh, so our next question just follows up with this question um, a little bit more. And, and this is really sort of uh, going back to the conversation about communication. Uh, during those extended wait times for licenses over the past couple of years, it became clear that members need more communication from the Secretary of State Office during the licensing process. Uh, at the same time, the Architecture Licensing Board has relayed that it only heard from the current Secretary of State once in eight years. Uh, and I think someone who asked this question is looking for a commitment. Oh, so how would you, how will you better communicate with the various groups affected by the Secretary of State's office? And do you plan to meet with the various regulated professional boards either before the general election or after you are elected to learn more about their unique challenges? Uh, so let's see. I think we're back to starting with you. Okay. Uh, no, wait. Actually, I think I'm. Are you first now? Well, I was last. Does that mean I'm first? Uh, <laughs> let's let's start with Congressman. Right. Yeah, <laughs> when I first announced my intention to run for this job last year, we reached out to every single professional association that is regulated in some fashion by the Secretary of State's office. And we asked to meet with them to learn their issues and their concerns, because we know they're not the same. They are somewhat uneven. Talk to nurses, they got one set of problems. Talk to cosmetologists and morticians, they got other problems. But we reached out to every single one of them and visited with all of those who were interested. The reason we reached out to the associations and not to the boards is, first off, it's a little presumptuous to speak to the boards, since we don't appoint them, and they're appointed by somebody else. But more importantly, I think the boards were made to serve the associations, the professions, and not the professions made to serve the boards. And so we reached out to all of the associations that are regulated and invited and welcomed meetings and set up opportunities to get to know their issues better. We've already done that. In other words, my commitment to what I'm going to do as Secretary of State is something I've already done as a candidate, and I'll continue to do that. I want to piggyback something else on that in response to something that His Honor pointed out here. Yes, it's true the office doesn't have any power except to advocate, but there is strength in numbers. And there are a whole lot more people being served by the Office of Secretary of State than there are legislators who are taking advantage of the current situation or institutions that are not doing their respective jobs. So you bet I'm going to be dependent upon y'all to help advocate for the reforms that will give you the services that you are paying for. You shouldn't be providing services to somebody else through your professional licensure fees. That's what's going on right now. So absolutely there's a need to do this. I've already fulfilled that commitment in my campaign. I'll continue to do that as Secretary of State. For the main reason, that's the only way we're going to be able to get anything done. It's the only way we're going to be able to get anything done is to bring to bear the numbers of people who have a legitimate grievance about the way in which the system is being run in direct contact with the policymakers who either don't know or don't care 
how the level of service has been provided over time and let them understand each other's issues. I can assure you that's the way we'll get some change. It's the only way we'll get any change. This is not a strange concept, but a leader is the servant of those he leads. And as mayor, we have multiple departments. We have multiple commissions and boards as part of the city of Alpharetta. And I always considered myself their advocate as well. In other words, I serve them. And so whether it's the Parks and Rec Commission, whether it's the Planning and Zoning Board, whether it's the Board of Zoning and Appeals, all those folks, we try to make sure we're there for, that we help lead them, that we include them in the vision and the long-term plans. As Secretary of State, absolutely. Not only is it important to serve the individual members of those boards, but also the boards themselves, but to be, where possible, their advocate because they're sounding board. Because when it comes to the state legislature, when it comes to uh, the governor's office, when it comes to just leadership in general, there has to be someone who can take up that case who can be an advocate, so absolutely. Yes, I will meet, we'll meet with every uh, board that we have, and I've already been talking to license holders and hear their pain points. And if you look at uh, both at city council level and also the state house, I've always listened to the people that are out there. When I was on city council, a person talked to us about illicit massage parlors, and that's kind of a seedy topic. But I realized that I didn't have the authority to do that, and so I pulled together another council member, our city attorney. We worked together with our community. And we passed the model ordinance to shut down illicit massage parlors in our city. I end up down in the state house, and I forgot about this completely, about a swatting incident that occurred in our city. So Detective Sergeant Finley calls from the Johns Creek Police Force and says, we need to increase our, the, the penalties for swatting. You're now down in the General Assembly. You can do something about it. And so we started working on that. But that bubbled up from people listening to folks. Then one of my neighbors, he was just a middle school boy, and he was born deaf, and he started an organization called 2020 Hearing. And he said, what can we do for hearing aids for people that need them up to the age of 18? And for six years, we had never gotten anything through the General Assembly. I pulled together some folks. We, we dropped a bill in the House. We dropped a bill in the Senate. And then I worked with people that had a dog in that hunt, and we got a bill passed. So now you have hearing aid coverage for youth. And so a business owner came to me and said, why do we have to renew our corporations every year? Why can't we do that every three years? I said, that's a good idea. And what, so what you take away from all that is I've been ear to the ground. I've heard your pain points. And I've heard from some of the boards a much stronger and a higher uh, uh, octave le level than yours. Uh, and so when I hear from you, I want to make sure that you get great service. Because at the end of the day, taxpayers and license holders, you guys are paying for everything. You're the one that are paying for the lights, paying for the heat down in the General Assembly. You're paying for, for the Secretary of State's office. It's only right that you get great service from us. And I'll be meeting with you, and I want to hear your feedback so we have action items so we can just start knocking them off one at a time. Thanks. Thank you. All right. So for the next question, we'll start with Mayor Bell Isle. All right. <laughs> uh, so this question um, really is sort of looking at <clears throat> uh, maybe some uh, future issues or current issues, but sort of moving into into the next General Assembly session. Uh, in terms of Good Samaritan laws, uh, Georgia currently has an ambiguous law that provides a liability shield for anyone who works for no pay during emergency situations. But most states provide laws that apply specifically to doctors, nurses, architects, and engineers. Would you, as Secretary of State, support a stronger law that specifically supports these professions, ones, ones that carry professional liability insurance rather than general liability insurance? 
So uh, I'm an attorney by trade, and uh, one of the first things I do when I'm talking to someone and it comes up that I'm an attorney, I say, but I'm not that kind of attorney. Uh, and it's true. I, to be honest, I, 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 the, the whole tort liability stuff, the personal injury type stuff, and, and, and I, I know y'all aren't attorneys, so good, but if you're married to one, I apologize. But I have always had an issue with, uh, with to be honest with you, with, with that kind of personal injury type chasing thing. So in order... In, in, to protect those who certainly who come together to, to in some kind of emergency scenario to help somebody, absolutely, I think they should be protected and shielded from liability if they're saving someone's life or property in some type of emergency scenario. That just makes all the sense in the world. Um, so that being said, I, it sounds strange coming from an attorney, but I always, I'm a good kind of attorney. I do transactions and <laughs> draft loan documents, and I work with AIA contracts. But uh, anyway, thank you. Representative. Absolutely. Uh, volunteerism is really the, one of the things that sets America apart from all the other nations in the world. And we've always had a history of people really digging deep and being volunteers. In fact, if you look at all the hospitals, at some of the older hospitals, it'll be St. Mary, St. Mark, St. Luke. But you'll think it came out of that charity you know, concept. Many people don't realize, and thank you for the question, is that Georgia is actually a leader on our charity care network for doctors and nurses. And one of the largest charity care networks is up in Gainesville, where they're serving indigent people. And that saves the state millions and millions of dollars each year. So absolutely, we do need to modify that law because we need design professionals. You have specific, specialized education and skills to really get buildings back, towns back, up uh, to full 100% uh, efficiency and occupancy. So absolutely, I'll take a look at that and propose legislation through the General Assembly to get you all covered so we can get you out there with the doctors and the nurses, and you don't have to worry about getting sued. Thanks. Thank you. Congressman? I'm not sure uh, what that kind of lawyer is, but I can tell you even those kind of lawyers uh, look down on lawyers who make the profession look bad and bring extreme cases uh, that run counter our common sense. Our common sense tells us and it's emergency time. People responded to an emergency uh, for no pay or compensation. Uh, they should be exempt from claims of ordinary negligence because they're doing the right thing. And we ought to encourage that and subsidize that in the indirect fashion by removing people from liability, exposure to liability for ordinary negligence in extraordinary times. And so that's why I, too, support strengthening this to make it very clear uh, that if you're, you're a licensed professional and you're responding to an emergency, uh, you should be subject to liability for anything except the most extraordinary kind of negligence because you're responding to an extraordinary demand for service. And we should make that easier, not harder for folks to do that. All right. I think I can speak for all lawyers in saying that, certainly all the good ones, they feel the same way. Thank you. Thank you for that. Okay, so um, I think at this, this is a good time to open up questions to the audience and see uh, what, uh, what this group is interested in hearing about. Uh, do we have any... Any questions? Um, we have a microphone that will rove through the room and find you. Yeah. Good morning. My name is Mark Trophy. I'm an architect here in Atlanta. And uh, we have recently started a group uh, to advocate for residential architects. And one of the questions that I have is that uh, normally in the state of Georgia, in order to build a house, no matter how small it is, <coughs> it is required to have 
but you're not contractor on board. But by the same token, it's not required to have a licensed professional um, or an architect to design this very house. So what are you going to do uh, to change that? Do you think that that makes sense? If yes, why? If not, are you going to change the law once you become Secretary of State? All right. uh, Representative, would you like to start with that question? Well, that's a good question. Uh, we had talked earlier about that. And I believe that uh, we need to make sure that, uh, I guess we were going to have to really look at, we don't want to place burdens and have another additional license. But if people are practicing architecture, and there should be a certain uh, amount of, you know, I guess cost to folks, that there should be require a license. My uh, concern would be is that you overregulate and it just drives up the cost of construction. But also, if we don't have an architect look at the plans, uh, as I was talking about, when we practiced engineering and I went and talked to architects and I look at all the things that you know, it's amazing. You know, it's not just the, what the building looks like. It looks beautiful. We get that. But then you understand the HVAC systems and all the things. And then, you know, how do you shed water off the building, the envelope? And so those are really the issues that we have to take a look at because at the end of the day, if we don't have some type of licensing or some type of standards in place, people end up having all these costs and they're saying, what happened here? Well, because you didn't have it flashed properly. And that's something that happens well after warranty phase. So it really it's a question about homeowner protection. And so many times when people buy their first home, they're going into debt. I know we did that. We had a 95% mortgage. We put down 5%. We were young, maybe kind of crazy when we did that. But you know that was our first stake. You know, you know, being property owners in America, and you know that's what we want to see. But we also, you're still kind of young and broke for several years, and you don't want to have an issue five years later. So it's a good question, and we do need to take a look at that. But one of the things you said, what would we do to change the law? And uh, what you do to change the law is you stay in the legislature. <laughs> but uh, but if you're going to actually work and try to figure out how do we keep it safe, when we bought our first house. The builder decided to build it on the side of a cliff, uh, and it was, it was the cheapest house in the subdivision. Wonder why? Because there's no yard. We literally had a house, a basement with a 12-foot ceiling, unfinished, and then there was a crawl space with a 10-foot ceiling, and then there was a, a concrete base at the bottom. I, I know they didn't make any money on that house. And before we could sell that house, we ended up, fortunately, they, we had a, a home buyer's warranty. Um, but before we could sell that house, we ended up having to jack that house up and pour untold amounts of concrete to try to reshore up, uh, which was, I think, a, a bad idea from the start. And so, you know, when you're talking about someone's home, among all the assets in the world, that's people's most and highest possession in terms of the value. It's really, in many times, that equity in that house is really their net worth. <laughs> and so, yeah, absolutely, it makes sense to be, you know, to be very... Uh, to, to make sure that we're, you know, things are done right, to make sure that we're crossing our T's and dotting our I's on that. Uh, so, yeah, thank you. You've heard the regulation, the case for regulation being made pretty well by a couple of Republicans. I'm not going to second guess anything they say, but I'll add this. Just as it makes sense to regulate the construct the residential contractor, it also makes sense to make sure the designs they're constructing are also built up to standards. That's the case for regulating residential contractors. It makes no sense to have a Registered architect providing good plans if it's being executed by somebody who doesn't know what he's doing at the construction phase of things. So too at the design phase. In fact, it's probably more important at the design phase. All right. Thank you, Congressman. Yeah. Uh, we have a microphone. We have a microphone. <laughs> uh, good morning. Thank you good all morning. for being here. I appreciate uh, the opportunity to speak. To
One of the questions that, I, well, the question I have um, has to do with the ability to, like, like, to hear us, but also the lobbying power. Um, those that are in the AJC, or AGC, the Associated General Contractors, have a much larger lobbying budget, and obviously they've been able to get things passed through the legislature that are advantageous to them and absolutely de devastating for architects, and that particularly is fees. Um, and the manner in which the state, our state, looks at design build versus architecture. And that's from the Secretary of State's office in terms of how it regulates the uh, the professions, but also in the general legislature. So what I want to know is um, how will you, in the Secretary of State's office, use the relationships that you have also with your legislators to advocate for basically better treatment and better understanding of architects? Because now design build is not really, even though design is the first word, it's actually a contractor. And so basically the contra it's a contractor-driven profession now, and our fees, whether it's the Board of Regents or any other aspect of it, um, we end up, they're, they're down to now 4% for architectural fees, and that includes engineers, and that's absolutely ridiculous. Um, so I want to know what is it that you will do in terms of your relationship with our profession, not about the how much money we can give, but how we actually protect the, the general public um, in terms of the fees and making certain that you raise and elevate uh, architecture in our profession to the health, safety, and welfare of the public. Thank you. Uh, Congressman, would you like to start this round? Y'all are getting squeezed by folks that are encroaching on your turf, just like some other professions are. And it's a serious problem because folks will end up paying for something and won't be getting what they're paying for. I'm going to listen to the folks who have the strongest case to make for the public safety. I'm going to advocate for y'all's position. If there is some way in which you can incorporate the services of registered and licensed architects in what folks are doing so that they can offer a total package, that's one thing, but a package is missing the component of professional architectural services is something that folks don't want to buy. They'll buy it if they're allowed to and someone is able to peddle it. What we need to do is make sure folks realize what they're getting. We advocate for the General Assembly to make sure that we're not letting your profession go the way of the travel agent just being squeezed out by technology and folks that you kind of all promise the same thing, but you're not getting the same service. The last thing we want to do is let that happen to y'all's profession. Look, we form our buildings, and our buildings form us. What we want to make sure of is that our buildings don't fall in on us or experience the other kinds of difficulties you're getting from folks who are offering both design services and construction services, but they're really only providing construction services. Obviously, what is not known cannot be fixed. And one of the things, so in addition to the projects that I would chase as mayor, when we had to bring, okay, this involves community development and engineering, so we bring those folks together, or we bring folks from outside our organization and trying to accomplish this agenda or the other. We had a routine, and it was established when I became mayor, is that every single department head, that I would have a, just a standing breakfast. And so that standing breakfast was not simply to talk about the big project that's going to be voted on on Monday night, it was to get a sense of how is everything going within the department? What are the needs? What needs to be fixed? How can we do a better job? And those are the kinds of relationships and communication. That's what makes all the difference. You cannot fix what you do not know. And if you don't take the time to work with those department heads to figure out, in this case, the boards and the different professions, then you're not going to be able to be an advocate or be able to, to, to fix the problems that are there. So that's how I was a mayor. That's how I'll be as Secretary of State. 
I don't have an answer for you today. Uh, thanks for bringing that up and talking about that. All I can tell you is that I have worked as an engineer of record, and when I started doing work as engineer of record, my uh, respect for all of you just was elevated because I really saw what went into it. Like I said, it wasn't just how good it looked on the outside. I never understood what my grandfather was doing. It's really, it's the HVAC, it's the envelope. It's everything that goes into it. And then reading all these different codes and looking, well, we can't do that. What about egress? What about fire? You know, like those types of issues. It's very, very complicated and you just can't cheapen it. And that's the issue, you know. And I also, as an engineer, I worked hard for my four years. And I know you did too. And I, just like I respect nursing and I respect the medical profession. I think we need to respect the professions and understand you bring an awful lot of value, long-lasting value, you know, to what you do. So I will look into that issue for you. Thanks. Thank you. All right, next question. We have one right here. Yes, um, I wonder if you could each tell us about uh, voting machines. Uh, there's been a fair amount of discussion about the need for verifiability. Could you tell us what you think uh, about that, about uh, when they might be funded if we get a new generation and when we might reasonably expect to see them uh, in use? Uh, let's start in the middle this time. Yeah. Right. Thank you, Mayor. Well, fantastic. So here's the thing. On the voting machines, we're working off, uh, for those of you who don't know, voting machines from 2002, working on software from 2000. And when we go to vote right now, when you hit cast ballot, you have to, by faith, believe that the vote is going to be recorded just the way you did on that electronic screen. There actually is no ability to do any type of recount, any type of post-election audit. We just have to believe the electronic record is right. And so, yes, it's time to move to that next generation of machines, but we also, in doing so, need to go to a system that creates not only better voter security, but also better confidence. Uh, and so what I would suggest and what I will champion is a system essentially by which you would show your photo ID and you'd be given essentially a piece of paper or cardstock. You would submit it into the machine. You'd vote electronically just like you do now. But when you hit cast ballot, two things happen. One, it creates an electronic record of that vote just like we have today. But it would also print out that selection onto the piece of paper so that you can visually verify that the vote that you just made electronically is represented on that piece of paper. You would then submit that to a second machine, which would also do two things. It would make a scan of that vote and making a second electronic record. It would also store the physical record so that each and every vote has two electronic records and one physical record. I would even store those two electronic records on two separate cyber-secured closed-circuit databases. And that way, if there is a need for a recount, you can actually have a recount because you can test one result against the other. That diversity, that redundancy, I think creates not only better voter security, but better voter confidence and better practice in terms of election security. And I think everyone is better, is, is for uh, better voter security and making sure we have fair elections. And that's the system that I would champion. To the cost situation, it's not cheap. And here's the thing, the legislature should have been putting money aside all the time. For a, it's going to cost $110, $120 million for these machines. But we haven't put any money aside for that. So it's going to have to be a one-time capital expenditure, perhaps straddled over two fiscal years. That's what we do in cities sometimes when we don't have the funds for that new capital project. But in the future, the legislature, they need to put money aside on a regular basis so that we can do that. So if, yes, absolutely. All right. Representative, would you like to yeah, Thank you for your question. When I started running for Secretary of State, I've been talking for about 14, 15 months now, 
And what I've said is that voting machines need to be updated. And people said, first of all, why? Because they were put into service in 2002. The last time the software was updated was 2005. And if you think about last year, Siri, she had her birthday, and she's now 10 years old. And so the iPhone has been updated now to, to iPhone X, and we're still using updated, outdated uh, voting technology. What was just used recently as a test run was in the city of Conyers. And so it looked like the electronic machine you have right now. And so you looked, and you looked at all your selections, and you pressed that button. But instead of cast your ballot, it was to print the ballot. And then printed out a piece of paper, and then you could look and verify, did I make the right choices? I didn't make a mistake, great. And then you walked over to here, and then you went ahead, and then you then put it into the optical scanner. It scanned your vote to record the vote, but then it dropped into the box. So now you have a verifiable paper trail. And I think that's what people really wanted, because then when they put it, that little plastic card, is it, what, what does that mean? And did it really you know, register my vote? And so now that you have a verifiable paper trail, means we can do recounts, we can do post-election audits, so that's very important. The General Assembly last year had three bills on this, two in the House, one in the Senate. We came very close, but what was very obvious is as we were talking about that, one day all the county election supervisors came down there and they're saying, what are you guys talking about? And no one had reached out to them. Because for the last 15 months, I said there's five groups of people you need to be talking to. And the first group is the general, well, in the General Assembly, it's the House and the Speaker. Number two is lieutenant governor and the senator. Number three is the governor. Why? Because they're going to have to vote the funds for this cost, and it's a big cost. But the other two constituencies are your county election supervisors. They're the implementers. That'd be like someone coming up with a great idea, but they have no idea how. And that's why you need engineers on your jobs. Y'all, you architects, you're so creative, but you need structural engineers because we're going to make your great ideas. We're going to make it actually stand up and work. And that's why you need your county election supervisor. They're the same kind of folks. They're going to have to do the hard work of actually implementing the General Assembly's ideas. And then the other one are folks that are really good with technology. You got them in your office. These guys that are really good with IT, yeah, like my youngest son, you know, those kind of folks, really good with IT. And we have some of the best IT in Georgia with Georgia Tech, our cybersecurity center that's just expanding and exploding down in Augusta. We bring them all together, build consensus. Secretary Kemp has formed a bipartisan commission, and they're going to be offering recommendations. To answer your question specifically, I believe we'll have a bill this session. We will pass it, and then we'll be getting an RFP request for proposal from several vendors. What we want to do is we want something that's open source, lots of competition. We don't want to just have it that you get to bid on it or just you get to vote or bid on it. We want you know, five, 10, as many people as we can based on a certain standards. Low qualified bidder gets it. We implement it for the 2020 election then. We'll have a new technology in place. It'd be great to get it. a test runs done for the municipal elections in 2019. That would be my goal for you. So the 2020, we have worked out all the bugs, and we're ready to go for the next uh, presidential election. All right, thank you. Congressman? You've just heard the argument made, the case made for the vendors who want to sell the most expensive option to the state of Georgia, which is basically forcing all of us to vote on machines that the law only requires to be made available for folks who are handicapped and need mechanical assistance in order to be able to cast their vote. That is far and away the most expensive and unnecessary option of all. You've also heard two candidates make the case for being a me too, but not now approach to this problem. And that is the result of the General Assembly's basically being misled for years by the current administration of the Secretary of State's office, which has denied for years that there's a little problem with these machines. They are good enough for most purposes. They're good enough for taking an opinion poll. 
They're good enough for lots of purposes, but they're not good enough under Georgia law. The law in Georgia that allowed us to go down this digital highway actually set a standard for the Secretary of State to enforce, and that is to certify every time that these machines are used that they are literally foolproof, that they cannot be tampered with. And we have seen case after case and instance of instance in which they can be tampered with. They have been. Not long distance over the internet, to be sure, but up close and personal every time you enter a ballot because you're programming a computer with a computer program that you cannot read. You don't know what the results are. We've heard a lot of folks basically talk around the problem. The problem is the machines no longer meet the Georgia standard, the Georgia statutory standard of reliability, which is for all practical purposes, they can't be tampered with at all. The good news is the state law already provides an option whenever the secretary determines that these machines no longer meet the statutory standard. And that is a paper ballot off-ramp. When we went down this digital highway, they gave us a paper ballot off-ramp. And it's the very same technology we're using right now to cast absentee ballots and provisional ballots. And if you talk to the tech people, the people who spoke at the legislative hearing last year on what's the best way to go, they will all tell you the state of the art today for reliability and accuracy and ease of use is hand-marked paper ballots using optical scanners. The optical scanners provide a quick and reliable but unofficial count on election day so we can get our results in Georgia at the same time they're getting results in Alabama for a Senate race. That thing was wrapped up at 9.30. But we'll wait until 1.30 or 2.30 to deal with the technological lag caused by having to physically move these cards without going on the internet and the results are still not 100% reliable. That's the standard the law sets, and it ought to be the standard we insist on. We got a couple of guys here saying, yeah, I agree with that too, but not now. We'll do it after the 2018 election. We'll do it when the legislature takes the lead. It's the Secretary of State's responsibility under the law to take the lead, to keep the General Assembly apprised of these developments. And those include developments when the picklocks become stronger than the padlocks, and that has clearly happened here. And we got folks who are basically rat ratifying and endorsing and running on the same outstanding record that there's not a problem, there's not a problem, we'll deal with it later. Well, that's not good enough under the law. It won't be what, what we do when I'm Secretary of State. I'm gonna convene the process to make a determination as to whether or not these machines are reliable. And as I know they are not, because they've been proved in, in, in the public that they are not, we're gonna decertify those and do the way the smart people, the, mo the most tech-savvy people say we should do it. Marking these ballots by hand and using technology to provide an accurate count, but it gives you something you can count with your eyes and when necessary, something you can recount. We cannot say that now. And it's irresponsible and failing to meet the statutory burden of the office to say it's okay for us to deal with this problem by 2020, but we can ignore it in 2018. Everything's fine right now. That's just wrong. It just doesn't comply with Georgia law on the subject. All right, thank you, candidates. So we're gonna, uh, we're gonna let that be our last question for the session. Uh, Anne is gonna join us back up here. And I just wanna thank our candidates for your responses and your attention to these issues, the issues of, of regulation, uh, licensure, licensure processing, uh, funding and support for our boards and enforcement of licensure uh, uh, and investi the investigations that are necessary. All of these issues, funding for the Secretary of State's office, all of these issues are vitally important to our profession. And we really appreciate your time and attention on these issues. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I just 
just wanted to say a quick thank you again to the candidates for being here and also to our AA staff and Catherine for moderating. Uh, Malachi, Chris, Missy, and David, I know you got up very early today to organize this after partying at the summer social last night, so thank you. Thank you as well to all of you for coming out this morning and talking, and please feel free to stick around and mingle with the candidates if they have time and have some more coffee. Thanks.